Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. And we have our regular guest back with us, Dr. Andrew Rees. Hello Andrew, how are you? Hello there. How are you feeling today? I'm going well. Good. So um, you're an expert in solution-focused therapy. So you've uh, you've spoken a lot about it in other fora. I think the first important uh, point to make is that all forms of talking therapy exist because they work, don't they? This is not some kind of mumbo-jumbo that that, that we spout on. There is true efficacy. There's evidence of efficacy for these interventions, isn't there? Well, yes, there, there is uh, good evidence for their efficacy. I'm, I'm a little cautious about being described as an expert <laughs> pretty much in anything. Um, <clears throat> certainly an area that I've explored and I've had some success. Yeah. Uh, and uh, solution-focused therapy is amongst many of the talk therapies that have um, good evidence for their efficacy in different populations. Mm. Yeah. And you've also described that it's really important for people to be in the present. And that doesn't just mean the the patient, it also means the therapist or the doctor. What do you mean by being in the present during these kind of therapeutic interactions? Well, humans essentially have two modes of engaging in thinking. One would be described as sort of the bottom-up thinking, which... uh, we often just engage in a sort of autopilot response Mm. to things. And the other style is uh, top-down thinking where the frontal lobe is properly engaged uh, and uh, we're truly there and in the moment. Mm. Um, People who are uh, in the moment are better able to do uh, the higher-level sort of tasks. People who are... uh, in the, I suppose, default state, uh, find themselves doing uh, things like automatic thinking and Mm. um, engaging in habitual behaviour. And often if their uh, previous behaviour and thought patterns has been less than positive, um, Mm. the result of that is that they um, continue to do the same uh, things that are just not efficacious in their lives. So what I'm hearing is that, you know, we we all have a kind of a, a default setting of automatic thinking that, that, that gets us through most of our life. And that default is, is really the function of our past experience. And if, we, and if we've learned to cope with negative, negative uh, experiences by uh, eating too much cake or taking too many drugs or you know, in any other way that is ultimately harmful to us, that's still, that, that, that kind of default behavior still lurks in our background and and i suppose part of therapy is to actually teach us to develop a new way of dealing with a problem a new way of behaving so that we don't rely on the default is is that what i'm hearing from you yes i i think that's right um the the tendency is to continue to repeat the same uh ineffective behaviors thought patterns and so on yeah Um, And getting people to be in the present moment 
is so important. But the problem for us as therapists, uh, as GPs or alcohol and um, other drug specialists or whatever role we might fulfil, uh, is that we can often be just as guilty of having these very patterned behaviours of thinking and behaviour. Can you give me an example of how a therapist would, would have a default pattern of behaviour that would be less than optimal? Oh. Well, it might be something as simple as a, a patient uh, comes in and uh, we take an alcohol history, for example, mm -hmm. and they tell us that they drink 40 standard drinks a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just give a, a very patterned response of, well, you know, this is going to kill you. Right. Um, rather than um, engaging in a de degree of empathy, um, engaging with the patient, truly coming to understand what their difficulties are, uh, perhaps helping to uh, work out what the payoffs might be from mm. uh, their behaviour that, Yes, we do know that it's going to be self-destructive, mm -hmm. but that sort of immediate giving them sort of uh, a very patterned response of uh, firm medical advice rather than uh, engaging with the patient uh, properly. So the good old days of paternalism are, have, don't work anymore, is that that's what you're saying? Well, I think it's, the truth is that they never did work. Uh, it's just that we might have convinced ourselves that yeah, they did. Yeah. So what I'm hearing then is that we can engage more in, in what you've described previously as top-down thinking rather than bottom-up thinking. We have a chance of, of, of changing uh, outcomes and, and, in fact, behaviours. But it has to be th th that kind of process has to occur by... Um, living in the present, using our, our forebrains in the present and avoiding, as, you've, as we've said, paternalistic thinking? Well, paternalistic thinking, I think, is just one of the symptoms. But yes, yeah. the, the other statements that you made, I think, is, are quite accurate. And one of the reasons why I have found um, solution and strengths-focused techniques to be useful is that, well... If we contrast it, say, with something like acceptance and commitment therapy, mm. um, that tends to be more of an, an explicit process of getting the patient into the present moment. And as I sit with my patient and uh, we work through that, that's often when I also make sure that I am also truly in the present moment with my patient. Yeah, With solution-focused therapies, what tends to happen is that the the whole process just seems to deliver both parties fairly smoothly into into present moment mm. thinking. Much more so than acceptance and commitment therapy. Well, it's just that it doesn't require that sort of explicit process. Mm. So can you just explain what acceptance and commitment therapy is? So, well, with acceptance and commitment therapy, the again, it, it does rely on people being in the present moment. It requires uh, them to start uh, working through the uncomfortable uh, content uh, for themselves, so those, un those uncomfortable uh, thoughts and feelings, so that uh, there's not a dysfunctional avoidance of experience. Mm. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, we don't look to have people uh, avoid all uncomfortable experience, mm. uh, but rather to avoid uh, to no longer avoid 
um, uncomfortable thoughts and feelings when it's causing them to uh, become dysfunctional. Right. So uh, an example of that might be um, somebody who is feeling very sad about something, perhaps present circumstances or past circumstances or um, maybe even their worries about uh, their impending future. And so they distract themselves or they um, take uh, substances, um, whether they're medicinal substances or substances that they've obtained on the street, mm. or they might engage in computer gaming and so on, or they separate themselves from family and friends. Those kinds of things can then lead to dysfunction and they find themselves uh, spiralling further and further down to the point where their level of function drops and and so acceptance and commitment therapy says well let's stop struggling and let's commit ourselves to um to change right um and to growth all of these therapies really work on the basis that uh it's not my job ever to tell people how to live their lives but perhaps together uh we can find out what's stopping the growth and then people grow uh, in towards their values and uh, improve their function. So how is acceptance and commitment therapy different from solutions-focused therapies? What's, what's the key difference in your view? Well, with solution and strengths-type therapies, the idea is to actually not be terribly interested, I suppose, in one, in one sense, about what the patient's problem is. Mm but rather to look at what are their strengths and uh, to consider um, then really what is the solution, but not for me to give the solution to the patient, rather to uh, help them to unearth the strengths, the resources that they already possess. Mm. And then they um, move towards their own solution. Right. So... Really, what I'm hearing is that acceptance and commitment therapy teaches people to accept suffering and deal with suffering rather than as trying to avoid it in a, in a dysfunctional way, where solutions-focused therapies teaches people to understand their strengths and tap into their inner strength to then go and deal with whatever problem they've got. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, that, that's a fairly reasonable summary, I think, of... Right. So, but there, I'm sure there are far more experienced uh, practitioners who would bring out a great many different nuances. Mm -hmm. But in, in with a broad stroke approach, I think that's right. about right. And you've said in the past as well that it's important to consider that all therapies need to be tailored to the needs of the patient. So it's not really a one size fits all. So how do you go about tailoring your talking therapy to your patients? I think a very good starting point is to find out um, about them, mm. to find out what has been tried in the past, mm. uh, what was good about previous therapy, if there, if there was any, um, uh, what things didn't work for them, how do they like to approach things. Some people uh, particularly like an acceptance and commitment type approach. Mm. And if that suits them best, I'm happy to go with that. Other people have never explored anything different mm -hmm. and perhaps might like to explore a solution-focused approach. Right. Indeed, some people have 
only ever had solution-focused approaches and feel comfortable. So that's a really good place to start. Yeah. Um, for example, oh, so if, for example, somebody's dealing with uh, complex trauma but doesn't feel ready to go back and work through the trauma um, but rather would just like to move on, then solution-focused therapy uh, seems to work very well. Um, also, sometimes from a uh, practitioner point of view, um, just the skills aren't there or the, um, the infrastructure, uh, the, the backup, the supports aren't there to deal with somebody who might, as they expose past trauma, mm -hmm. um, have a sudden moment of uh, psychological uh, decompensation and need a, an urgent admission to a psychiatric facility. Mm -hmm. Uh, which can happen, yeah. and so uh, solution focused is is often a good place to start, uh, where people would just like, for now at least, to simply move on and um, build something new in yeah. their lives. So it's not dependent on dredging up the past; it's more about focusing on the future, isn't it? It's well, it's focusing on a hope yeah. for them. Yeah. I mean, a lot uh, of as as they build. Uh, their own picture of their own strengths, yeah. then they see that they actually have what it takes to work their way through this difficulty. Yeah, a lot of my patients, um, they say to me, oh, look, doctor, I just don't want to dredge up the past. I don't want to go to counselling because I don't want to tell my story again. I don't want to dredge up the past. But so really it's important to understand that, you know, there are therapies that, that just do not require you to go digging in your past and, you know, Strengths focused therapy yes. therapies, one of those therapies, as 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 is actually acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, they they do focus on hope, don't they? In acceptance and commitment therapy, that can sometimes use the trauma story mm. when it's an opportunity to teach mm. the skill to the patient mm. of how to actually um, work through things and not get drawn away, tugged away from their values yeah. by their thoughts and feelings. So it, it it does have a place, but it's not essential mm. in that particular therapy. Uh, Whereas in something like prolonged exposure, it's much more uh, a core to that therapy. Yeah, yeah. Which also goes back to the idea you've got to tailor the therapy for the patient because there are some patients for whom going back and dredging up the past is just a big no-no. So, you know, how do you deal with those patients? So, you know, whereas, whereas others do actually want to go back and dig up the past. So yeah, it is important to tailor the therapy to the patient. But, you know, and, and talking about the fact that you've, you've said it's important for the, for the therapist to understand him, him or herself, you know, this is a useful segue to what, what I've heard you speak of before, where you've used the analogy of Sung Su, and, you know, it's important to know yourself and, and the patient. And, you know, Sung Su said, if you know yourself and your enemy, you don't need to fear the outcome of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, then you, you've got a 50-50 chance of losing the next one. And if you don't know yourself, or you don't know your enemy, you'll never win. I know I'm paraphrasing that, but, um, yeah, it's, I, I'm interested that you use a, a, a military um, story to highlight a point about self-knowledge and therapy. 
Well, Sun Tzu was actually quite a uh, a philosopher, mm. and uh, the fact that he actually thought about those things and uh, had those experiences from his military career. Yeah. I think it's just a description of things that pertain to the human condition. Yeah. But uh, if we, we might look out at the things that challenge us mm. and form the view that we can either defeat them or be defeated by mm. them. If we don't engage in a, a degree of self-knowledge. Mm. And in fact, uh, that that will then, sorry, if we don't engage in a degree of self-knowledge, then we will uh, fall foul of that. Mm. And that, I, I suspect that's a little bit of the experiential avoidance as well. Um, if we're not prepared to accept and understand that we have f certain flaws, failings, weaknesses that we need to work through, uh, then we're, we're going to have some problems. Yeah. So I think it, it's important to engage in a degree of self-analysis. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, the the thing of um, solution-based therapies is just calling upon the patient's own strengths. The advantage for people uh, like myself who are in general practice is often uh, these things can quite quickly turn around the patient's mental state mm. so that they have a much more favourable view. Yeah of their immediate future, they start to generate a good plan of doing something different and that leads to better function, better mental health. Other therapies sometimes require, not always, but sometimes require a fairly fixed regime of certain number of processes and a certain amount of homework and those kind of things. Mm. Uh, solution focused far less so and that speaks back to the efficacy you know the talking therapies are efficacious they don't have i mean uh, i was going to say they don't have any side effects but yeah they have minimal side effects and certainly no drug drug interactions so you know it's a valid tool to consider in, in especially in the, the gp armamentorium but you know, going on to this almost combative uh, analogy, you know, we're moving from Sun Tzu to Jiu Jitsu, and you've you've also said that you know Jiu Jitsu is just basically the analysis of the human body in terms of tubes and levers, and then we think about emotional levers. So, tell us about emotional levers and what are they, and how do we how do we use them for good? Well, in this sense, I'm not actually talking about me using the patient's levers, but rather. Um, showing the patient that they possess their own levers within mm. themselves, their own strengths, yeah. their own ability to actually um, work through uh, their circumstances to make the changes that they require. Yeah. So um, the the analogy I was thinking of was uh, that came from uh, jujitsu wrestling was that. Um, it's actually not very hard uh, if you have the skill um, to um, deal with a much larger opponent. Yeah. And it comes from this whole idea of having some leverage and some understanding yeah. of uh, those basic principles of anatomy. And, and if we perhaps give that to the patient, that can be uh, very useful for them. I wouldn't want to make it too complex. It's just sort of the way that I thought about it as I was um, putting together some ideas. Um, you know, the, 
the patient might see that a particular difficulty is insurmountable. Yes. But then when they reflect upon what their strengths are, perhaps the things that their mum would say about them or their child would say about them and so on, and uh, the observations about their capacity for um, resilience and determination and strength and problem-solving, um, simple things just like uh, their ability to show affection to other people, to form bonds, to seek aid and so on, then they suddenly see that they actually do have the leverage that they require and uh, if they just gently push in a single point, the problem starts to go away. It's not to say that their problems are easy to deal with. They're often enormous problems. Mm. But if they start to make these little changes, then uh, often what appears to be quite a miraculous change can occur in their lives. Yeah, and I suppose that speaks to language, isn't it? We're using the word lever, but actually what we're thinking about in terms of language is the, is a realization of someone's strength and their ability to use and channel that strength to achieve a behavioral outcome. To what extent is language important when we're dealing with people in therapy? I think, yeah, I think it's very important. Um, when I talk to my patients, I listen to what they say about the people who are important in their lives, for example. I listen to what the views are that they hold about what strength they might have. Mm. And I then use that as I talk to them, as I explore it further, so that they... I think the whole idea of, of the therapy is that um, they tell themselves the story in a way uh, they tell themselves the story of how they're going to uh, achieve their good ends. Um, and uh, as they do that, it, it builds their hope about how they might overcome. Um, so it is really important to use um, their own language back to them rather than um, coming at it with some kind of technical term or or whatever it's got to be their plan it's got to be their way out of the forest so andrew you know what is the miracle question tell me more about that well so the miracle question is really a question about what is the hope that the patient might have of a different future and it's it's i suppose it's a portal a way through um for for the patient probably best done by an example i think a I'm going to create an imaginary patient, a patient who perhaps has a daughter called Tegan. And Tegan thinks that the patient is a great problem solver, for example, amongst his or her other skills. And so the miracle question might go something like this. Um, tonight, when you go to sleep, perhaps we could imagine when you go to sleep tonight, um, and you go off to sleep and in the middle of the night uh, without you knowing it a miracle happens and all of the things that caused you to have to come in today have just simply disappeared so when you wake up in the morning what will be your first clue that things have changed that the miracle has happened mm. and the patient might respond to that 
by something like, well, I might feel like getting out of bed more than I do. So that might be a, a behavioural response. But they may mm. not be sure what it is. So then I might use the things we've learned about them and say things like, well, what would be the first thing that Tegan notices? And then the patient might say, well, she might notice that I'm more fun. She might notice that I smile. She might notice that I make her breakfast. Th those kinds of things. And so we build on that. Uh, there are many other elements to this. This is just a very, very quick exploration of this idea. Um, but what then often happens is that the patient identifies, for example, that some things have already changed. They identify uh, that they do in fact have the strengths, uh, that they do have the resources. They start to have a, a greater degree of hope for their future and so on. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a very good uh, uh, analogy about, you know, how, how, how do we change? How do we link our thoughts and our reactions to our adversity to our future behavior? But on that note, we are going to have to leave it because unfortunately, you know, we've run out of time far too quickly. But I really would like the opportunity of speaking with you again in the not too distant future to explore the miracle question in, in more detail. So, Dr. Andrew Ruiz, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thanks for watching MedHeads. We'll see you next time.